Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the essential service known as the Midweek Breakdown. And if you like rabbit trails, if you like disorganization, if you like stuff all over the place, well, this is going to be the episode for you because I just basically finished doing our show notes uh, right before I started recording. Scott hasn't read half the links, so it's going to be a good one. I'm Christopher Spicer. And I'm the undereducated Scott Martin. And yeah, it was... I, We've had issues with technology before, and usually it's on the Microsoft end, but today, like literally five minutes before we contacted each other to record this, I was on Google Drive going through all the different articles that Chris had posted. Yeah, yeah. Not all of them there. So, if you ever got this, it, it, to be fair, it's also been chaotic, and I've and I normally put this stuff together. Like even though these shows are more free form and they come off less organized, I usually have all the notes in place the day before and what I want to talk about. Unless there's breaking news, this time around it's it's just been crazy times. Crazy times. So. Today, if it seems like I'm underprepared, guess what? It's not just a shtick. I'm underprepared. I don't think anyone's ever thought it was a shtick. <laughs> they just, they've just come to know the fact that I don't give a crap. I would say, I would say you don't give a crap. I, I think you crap very well. <laughs> I think you just got some uh, mental constipation. Speaking of crap, I've finished watching Battleship. Uh, yeah. So, so, so that, so that's not, that's not one of those sleeper films, eh? <laughs> no, no. It's... I don't know. I can I keep on thinking that, like, th- that's this film that all these people say, oh, it's better than you think, mm-hmm. and then you keep on making me think that I'm thinking wrong. This is very much like a hardcore Transformers copy. You would, honestly, you would think that Michael Bay had directed it. Um, it, it was the visuals, the loud noises. The only thing that really differed between this and an actual Michael Bay film is while there were slow motion, like unnecessary slow motion shots in uh, battleship, 
there weren't near as many unnecessary slow motion shots that would have been there had Michael Bay uh, done it. Is there was there any unnecessary slow motion shots going up someone's uh, Daisy Dukes? <laughs> Thankfully, no. Um, that is one of the creepier aspects of uh, of Michael Bay. His just fascination for very young, very attractive women. Um, yeah, I forgot to mention a 16-year-old Daisy Dukes. Yeah, yeah. Thankfully, uh, thankfully that wasn't there. Although there was a female character whose <laughs> whose job in the movie was basically to be hot. Was that Rihanna? No, no. There's two. There's two aspects of the movie that were good, that were that were good and 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 well done. And that was Rihanna. Her performance was good. And da, 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 none other than Jesse Plemons. Oh, I didn't know Plemons was in it. I had no idea until I saw him in the movie. I'm like, oh, good, this thing just got better. So maybe I do have to watch it because I have a life goal of seeing all things Plemons. Yeah, so apparently he was in Friday Night Lights with Taylor Kish. Maybe the show or the movie? I don't know. But this oh, was the movie. Y- okay, so it would have been that because I've read that. Um, Berg knew that they worked well together from Friday Night Lights, so uh, that's how Plemons got in there. And it was, uh, you know, he he brought some fun, and, and Rihanna was really, really. Oh no, wait! In. It looks like Taylor Kitsch was the show. Sorry, I got it mixed up. Okay, the I think I think what we learned from Battleship is that maybe he's not a huge leading man. Uh, in that type of movie, I mean, we liked him in um, Grand Seduction, and I think he, he could be good in other stuff, but in that uh, action role, it just wasn't there. Now, I'm under the belief, until I watch it and I'm corrected, or until you watch it and you correct me, I'm still under the belief that John Carter is actually a fun movie. I'm under that belief too. I've kind of got the idea that 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 one isn't as bad as it sounds. It's not as bad as I think people have made it. Um, it definitely has its strong supporters. I've I don't know if I've ever talked about it on this show, but I've told you about it many times. Uh, Scout Toyoyo Taro Scout. Anyways, they're uh, a film critic. Uh, first name Scout, he's been doing a series called Unloved, where he looks at several movies that have a really bad reputation or were box office bombs, and then he basically defends them. He does a, a film essay of why he thinks these films uh, deserve to be revisited, and one of his first movies, I remember, was John Carter. Yeah, and I've had a lot of interest in that one for a while because it, it's weird. when When a movie has a huge budget and bombs... It's like there's this belief automatically that it wasn't a good movie. That, oh, you know, it was a bomb, you know, so therefore let's ridicule it or mock it or, or whatever. But we can look at uh, some films in history that did not make money in the theaters that were actually quite good. And it just seems to be that as l- the longer the passage of time goes, you know, people start to... Start to lose that narrative. Oh, it must be bad because it failed. Do you, do you think that this fervent joy 
of jumping on things and just gleefully attacking it and, and gleefully having like such joy that something was a box office bomb and thus it deserves to be ridiculed. Do you feel that that's more of a modern thing within the last 10 years that's been ushered in with the internet? Because I've been talking about this a lot with people and talking a lot of this with uh, my wife. And I mean, there is a reality that human nature's always been negative. And I think that's the thing that we always have to be careful as people that we tend to look at the negative rather than the positive. But I feel with the internet, there's been more gleefulness in dwelling in negativity and kicking things while they're down yeah i'd say that's a that's on the rise i would say that part of the narrative over the last bunch of years too is that uh you know after 2010s like in 2012 2013 that area 2011 some budgets for movies just exploded just swelled right up right like we have these movies that all of a sudden you get multiple movies a year that are over 200 million dollars in some cases you wonder why uh you know john carter 250 million dollars into into that film uh, i even it's it just it, it we had some huge huge budgets and i think you know that was the time where a failure, a movie failure with that kind of budget was a bigger story because it meant lots of money lost. And I do think that that aspect of negativity um, did propel it because if, if we look at it, people would probably poke more fun at uh, John Carter and um, what did I just watch? Battleship. They poke fun at those still. But they would have forgotten Oogie Loves, which was an even, like, proportionally was an even bigger disappointment. So I think a lot of it is the fact that the budgets have just shot up. And so therefore the failures, failures it's like they, there's another metric to, to call them a failure. We can look at hundreds of millions of dollars and that's a way, instead of just the Rotten Tomato score, we have another indicator of a failure. Uh, yeah, I, I, I want to definitely go on what you're saying there because I think it's fascinating. But I do just want to say Scout Tafoya is his name who does the Unloved series because I butchered it before. I used Google and it's now showed me how his name is spelt. And so I attempted to pronounce it based off reading. Reading. It's a powerful thing. Uh, no, I, th I think you do have a good idea there. I think there is a little bit of gleefulness on jumping on things that have these big budgets. This idea of, oh, look, these people thought they're making this huge, massive tentpole hit, and ha, 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 look, it sucks. I mean, Lone Ranger, I think, was one that a lot of people had fun piling on, too. And I think they like it even more when it's a big-name producer like Jerry Brockheimer, which I think was attached to Lone Ranger. And when you had these big-name directors, you kind of have even more glee in jumping on them. But but I think there's two things. One is sometimes people are like, oh, can you imagine the budget they used? Sometimes you're also forgetting that, like, that wasn't the planned budget. Like, sometimes it's reshoots. Sometimes it's actually troubled filmmaking. Like, there, there's more reasons for that budget. So I think sometimes people are so quick at, like, oh, look at the arrogance of what they tried with that budget. It's like, well, that wasn't the planned budget. Like, like, the issues come up. And I think sometimes we need to be more forgiving of, like, 
it was just them sticking out in the budget. And I think at some times when they released it, they know they're in a lot of trouble because it did balloon. I don't know the case of John Carter. If that was the assigned budget. I do know that the director famously thought that John Carter was a bigger brand name than it was. Like John Carter is actually uh, based off a book series by Edgar Rice Burroughs, the same person who gave us Tarzan. He did John Carter, a sci-fi series of books. And it had a serial back in like the 30s. I think it had a TV series, it had comic books. Like John Carter was a big thing at one time. And I guess in his family, he grew up reading it. And so he was surprised to find out that it hasn't endured the same way as it had in his family. People didn't have the same attachment. And that's the same reason. Like they went on the name, the the movie has that name. They could that be enough to sell? So I know there's a bit of that, but I don't know if that budget was what was the original plan. But I definitely know the director thought it was a bigger name. So one, there's that. My other big thing though is I just, yeah, there's this jumping on the budget, but still kind of feels like a modern thing because did stuff like uh, Heaven's Gate and Ichan, like thing Ichan or however you say it, these things that had really big budgets but bombed. I don't feel like they got attacked the same way in like the 80s. I, I think it's more of a, like, it's a more recent phenomenon. Because if I think about it just casually, the only movie, like, in in my teens to, I don't know, early 20s, the only movie that you really heard people talking about as far as budget and failure was Waterworld. That, and Waterworld's an example of a movie where that wasn't the planned budget. That was issues. Mm-hmm. So, like, it... it I think it just shows that how back then that wasn't really, uh, it wasn't as discussed, you know, outside of probably, you know, real niche Hollywood circles because like, yeah, I can't remember anyone ever discussing budget or, oh, that movie is a failure because it like, maybe we didn't know because the information was hidden better. And now with the internet, it may be harder for studios to to hide that because if someone leaks it or whatever, then it's just, you know, it's as available to see as anything else. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that those things weren't pointed out. Like I know mm-hmm. Heaven's Gate basically bankrupted a studio and it almost like killed Michael Simo's career. Like he was never given a big studio movie again. And that is definitely things that Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel talked about, but it, what I guess what I'm trying to say more is, like you were saying, it's not the same gleefulness, though. It was more yeah. just, well, this it, it, it's worth talking about because it did so much damage. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, exactly. And so I think, I mean, that's the thing. We look at look at Oogie Loves, which when, when, it, when it hit the theaters, it did make headlines. But I think because, like, proportionally, the budget was so much smaller, even though that, like, dollar to dollar the failure was immense it's because the 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 budget number wasn't this grand figure that we could look at and scoff yeah and and i think there's definitely people that like to bring up oogie loves and i think it's a fine line like i think it's a fine line with with people who almost seem gleefully just 
and bash stuff. And then there's other people, uh, like I, I'm thinking of film critic Nathan Rabin, who just likes to write about flops. And he likes to write about these messy movies. But you read his reviews, and they're done with affection. They're done with care. And he seems to enjoy doing that. And I think of Mystery Science Theater, same thing. I think it came from affectionate place. And, and as well as you, to be honest, like you've done this up. I think it's more of an affectionate place. Well, I think some of a lot of the modern stuff, it dwells in negativity. It does. It, it it really does. And like the thing is, yeah, I like watching crappy movie or what I someone would call crappy movies. But there is a reason why I do it. There's a reason why I go towards those types of films because sometimes they're entertaining, and it's because people are hamming it up or. You know, the director feels like, okay, well, I'm just getting paid for this. I need to make some al alimony payments. So, yeah, we're just going to throw this together. And, yeah, first take, everything first take, we're good. So sometimes it just feels like you're part of a different type of experience when you're watching a film like that. When you're watching Gods of Egypt, it feels like we're, like, we're the producer. I, I bet you the producer and the director were probably on different lines. The producer was probably think. This was thinking, this thing, oh man, like you taking it real serious of, oh, we're opening up the door to Egyptian mythology and this is going to be the rage. No more laser swords and space wizards. It's going to be flying 14 karat gold eagles. And meanwhile, it feels like the director is just like, ah, no, no, don't fine tune those special effects. They're good enough. <laughs> like, that's what it feels like. Yeah. Uh, and uh, well, I think of something like, Soul Tangler that I wrote a review for a few years ago. It's a film that came out from 1987. And I, I actually know a, a listener of ours who was disappointed that I didn't rail against the movie even harder. And I'm not going to say it was a good movie, but I, I had pleasure in watching it in that it clearly was a passion project and yeah these people weren't necessarily actors and some of the shots were quite bad and the editing didn't work and it's a messy film but it came from a sincere place and it came from a place of love so even though and i ended up giving it two stars because i'm just like you see that effort and i also ended up listening to the commentary and i think one of the things i think for these bad movies you almost should listen to the directors and see where they came from because he's aware of what he made. He wasn't this person who was oblivious. He knew it was a bit of a mess, but I just loved hearing the affection he had for it, the love he still had this. And, and I mean, he was so tongue-in-cheek. Half the commentary, he's just like, I don't think anyone's obviously listening to this because why would somebody listen to a commentary for Soul Tangler? And I'm like, I'm listening to it, man, because I, I, I love hearing your love for it. Yeah, I, I, I have to say, I, yeah... There's, there's movies, like, when I think of The Room, my goodness, it is as awful as people say, but they, you could tell that there's so much passion and drive going into that, that film. Uh, and, and so it, it does change the experience. Meanwhile, when I'm watching something like Battleship, what it feels like is just a corporate misunderstanding of uh audiences and actually thinking audiences are stupid so when you watch a film like battleship it hurts a little more because you feel like they think you're you're adult you're just gonna pay for anything that is more 
you, you nailed it. That's more the stuff I rage against. That's more the stuff I have. I feel more justified of tearing apart is things that just feel like corporate greed and soulless budget films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, because they're insulting the audience now. They are. And I mean, sure, uh, Transformers, there was a movie, but there was a show before that. And just the toys, if you'd never even seen the show, there's an actual little storyline in the toys because you have the good guys and bad guys. And I, as a kid, never saw the show, but I knew uh, Decepticon and I knew what that meant. Uh, Meanwhile, you look at Battleship and seriously, all right, that game... We could come up with a generic replacement and ship it out. And there's only four things in the box. Gra- two sheets of graph paper and two pencils. And, and then that, that's the game. We've just substituted the entire idea, the entire game with, you know, clo- supplies you find in your closet. The failure of Battleship, though, is a good thing because Hasbro had plans of doing a Hungry Hungry Hippos mm-hmm. film. They had plans of a Candyland. I think it was supposed to start Adam Sandler. Like they were ready to launch a board game universe. And so I'm glad that Battleship went its way because I think it was going to get a lot worse. A Hungry Hungry Hippo movie? Oh, that, yeah. I'll, I'll like, see if you call if you want to talk about greed if you want to talk about not understanding an audience it was hasbro trying to launch these board game movies yeah there's there's a moment in battleship where they they can't everything's dark and they can't see their query so they're they're shooting at a grid i'm like man this is more fun this was more fun when i played it when i was eight years old even watching high budget missiles being shot at each other uh just blindly on a grid that that that's not good storytelling. I'm sorry, but that, it's 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 not. Wasn't there? Wasn't some of the oh, Monopoly too? Monopoly was uh, one of the ones as well. I mean, that would have been a great one. Wasn't one of the producers around Battleship or something like that rather sketchy? Am I remembering something wrong? Uh, I I I think there might have been something. I feel like Battleship was in the news longer than it should have been. I think there might be something like that. Yeah, because I, I think... There... I think the numbers were weird. Because I remember at one point, I remember reading people said, oh, ba- the Battleship's going to be a hit because it's done so well already overseas. And then all of a sudden, within a month later, everyone said, no, actually, it was a bomb. So I'm wondering if there was some weird fudging of numbers or something for stock, um, like for the uh, people who had stocks or whatever. Yeah. Investors, that's the mm-hmm. word I wanted. The investors. I may be making this up, but I thought that there was like a bit of a CD element around the uh, trying to get the Hasbro movies produced. There, th- there might have been. I, I think there was something there. I think there was some weird stuff going on with the Hasbro stuff. I think there's a lot of reasons why Hasbro hasn't uh, launched the way it's wanted. I, I, I think it's there's still a film division of Hasbro because I, I believe Max Steel was under Hasbro. Or Max, was it, it was, Max Steel? Oh, uh, yeah, Max. Wait, there was, okay, there was a robot fighting one. Steel, uh, that looked pretty entertaining. And then there was that one where the kid gets something from his dead father. Yeah, and Max Steel. That is Max Steel? Yeah, I, I just Googled and it's confirming. Max Steel, directed by Stuart Hedler, Hendler. Hmm. 
it had a budget of only ten million, but it only made six million. Womp, 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 womp. And you had mentioned Inchon, so I had to, I had to look. F- budget of forty-six million in nineteen eighty-one. Forty-six million worldwide. Yeah, and that's not adjusted for inflation, so no. that was a lot of money. Yeah, worldwide, wide five point two million. That's that is a bit sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's insanity to the umpth degree. Uh, I need to ask you a question though. Yeah. Did you not see Transformers as a kid? Because that, that baffles me. Because it just wasn't available in North Bay, or you're too busy watching Samurai Pizza Cats. I tried watching Samurai Pizza Cats because friends of mine in high school were into it. So I tried. I could. I I watched a few. Pingu is more my bag, right? Like. I, I absolutely love Pingu, so that was my thing in high school. Get home, make sure you're home in time to watch Pingu. The, uh, yeah, Transformers the show and G.I. Joe were just not available on any stations we had when I was growing up. Whenever yeah. we went down to St. Catharines to visit relatives, I got excited because there was the possibility that maybe I could get a like a little peek at a few minutes here or there. You know, while people are getting ready to go off and visit so-and-so, I may just be able to see five minutes of Transformers. Yeah, see, I was a kid growing up where we had first choice. Like, we had the movie channel. Like, we had all the channels. I was in a, a wonderland of TV shows. So I got to watch all those cartoons and be brainwashed into thinking they were good. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing Inspector Gadget at a friend's house. Do, when... do, 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 mm-hmm. do, do. Because that one was... That was a first choice, wasn't it? Yeah, that's the interesting thing about Inspector Gadget. Is it debuted in Canada? Off first choice is an exclusive show, and then within a few years, I guess after its run was done, then all my friends could watch it on Global, and they knew what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was one of those people that got really excited when it finally came to a, you know, to something we had, and I could watch it. I feel like even though Transformers and G.I. Joe and He-Man, I now know none of those aged well, I feel like Inspector Gadget, if I watched it now, I would still get some charm out of it. Because it's basically an animated Get Smart. It is, and I really liked Get Smart, so I don't know how I could dislike Inspector Gadget. Except for the movie that they tried to make. yeah. yeah, I'm not talking the movie, just the original animated series. I, I think they rebooted one because my cousin, not my cousin, my nephew knows Inspector Gadget, but I think the Inspector Gadget he knows is a reimagined one. Mm. Okay. Reimagined. What, what do you think about the idea? Like, so when you see that things that were you held so dearly in your childhood, when you see that they're being reimagined, like Ninja Turtles, how does that make you feel? Uh, well, it's funny you mention that because there is this whole culture, going back to the negative internet, there's so many people that always talk about, oh, they're murdering my childhood. Like, they're destroying my childhood, redoing this show. Like, that was a thing you heard a thousand times over when they did the female Ghostbusters. And you get people that get so mad when something they loved as a kid, you redo it. My philosophy is... Most of that stuff is available on Blu-ray or a box set or on a streaming service. It's still there. So why not make a new one for the new generation? And I just remind myself that, you know, this version's probably not being made for me. 
And you know what the reality is? And a lot of times, it's probably made better. <laughs> Most likely, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm not on that uh, group. I, 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 I'd laugh at those people, but but it definitely they definitely exist. And they, to me, they're just in that camp of the people who like to be negative. I mean, why get mad about something being made again? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't. Unless unless it just feels like a corporate money money grab, right? Like, yeah, but but that but that we we discover that when we watch it. So then that's when you should have the issue. My problem is when people get mad before they've even seen it. Mm. See, I'm just trying to think of my re- when when you started talking about that. I started trying to think. Well, what what was the basis of my reaction to hearing about Big Trouble in Little China getting remade? Well, well, Yes, that's no. I, I totally get what you're saying there. I 100% agree with you. I mean, I think both you and I though are willing to be proven wrong about Big Trouble in Little China, mm-hmm. and so that's the one thing we're not like enraged about it. We're just not optimistic, which I think is different because my fear is Big Trouble in Little China is a very B movie, very much. It was but it is silly and it's campy it was a massive flop in the 80s a huge critical flop and it's endured as a cult hit and you and i've said many times that cult hits do not make box office hits but if you're making big little trouble in little china and you're attaching dwayne johnson you're trying to make a box office hit you you are well you're trying to make it because now all of a sudden you have to make it because you got to pay dwayne johnson to show up and, and do his thing and uh, I don't want someone like Dwayne Johnson doing the lead role, Big uh, Big Trouble Little China, because most of the fun of the Kurt Russell character was that he thought he was a hero, but he never did anything. Well, that's the thing. If you're you're casting Dwayne Johnson, if you're if you're really remaking the movie and you're if you understand what made the movie fun, it's yeah, you've got this hero that is incompetent. Like there's. I can't think of one action scene where he did something that was like beneficial to anything. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, to be honest, I think someone like John C. Riley would be better casting. <laughs> That'd be interesting. That'd be actually on that, on that tip. I think Will Ferrell would be rather fun uh, in big trouble, little China. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the only problem with, with um, maybe casting both of those is you instantly know it's going to be a comedy. And I mm-hmm. think the joy of Kurt Russell was you go in and he hadn't necessarily done established comedies at that point. And so that was part of the joy. But at least I think those two, they would they would have no problem making themselves look like fools all the way through. Mm-hmm. I don't think Dwayne Johnson would. Yeah, because you, like, I mean, his thing is... Because he's got a brand. Yeah, and he's he's the action hero brand, right? So... Although I don't know, because if you look, if we look at Jumanji, he was willing to, you know, be sort of against type. Yeah, that's true. I, again, that's the thing is, I mean, I'm I'm willing to be proven wrong. I know you're willing to be proven wrong. I'm not going to rail against it, but am I excited about it? Not really, because mm. I, I don't think they'll do it right. I also just feel like that's one of the ones where... It's been made, and there's no reason to revisit it. My only hope would be that John Carpenter is attached somehow. Mm-hmm. That would be good, although that didn't prove necessarily 
uh, perfect for you with Halloween. No, not not for me. No, I, I, I didn't like as much as I... Yeah, I was really excited about Halloween because he was attached. And the thing is, the mood and the the style and the atmosphere of the new Halloween is really good. And I could see why there's a lot of people that praise it. My major issue with that was some of the plotting and character turns. Yeah, yeah. I... It's a doctor, man. I don't get it. No, and my thing was, like, I don't like when you get a shot in a movie and it's like, you know you're only getting the shot because someone's saying, oh, this is going to look so cool through the lens of a camera. So the opening... There's a few of those in that movie. Yeah, exactly. And it's just like, really? So, I don't know. One of the best ones out there that I can think of is the scene in Suicide Squad where Jared Leto's laying on the ground laughing maniacally and there's a ring, there's a circle of knives around him all pointing inwards. Like, did it? Did he get a phone call? Like, you know, hey man, it's Brett. Hi, Brett. Yeah, I can't really talk right now. Oh, what are you doing? Well, I got all my knives and I'm, I'm setting them up in a bit of a circle with all the blades pointing in. Oh, cool, man. What you doing that for? Well, Brett, I think once I have this done, I'm going to lay in the center of this and laugh. <laughs> what? Like, seriously? Like, okay, yeah, it may look cool when you see it through the lens of the camera, but really, like, I, I get the Joker's messed up, but really, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I would agree with you, but coronavirus, man, self-isolating. <laughs> got to find things you to gotta do. You got to find things to do. So who isn't going to just arrange all their knives, yeah, in a big circle? So you can lay down and laugh in them. <laughs> no, and, and I, get, I get a lot of movies do that, and and sometimes you and I let it go. But there, mm. I think there's, there's a level of acceptability of, well, we did this because it looks good, to where you're just like, wait, this makes no sense of why they're doing this. Yeah, one of the best ones I I loved was from from the movie Paycheck, uh, the John Woo film, where I think it was Ben Affleck's character, he's getting chased, so he drives his car through a big culvert, right? And so the people chasing him, they're, they're not following behind him in the culvert, they're racing alongside the culvert with the, you know, so they're just keeping up. Well, they start, you know how in a, in a car chase movie, they rant, you know, ram into each other turn each other and hit the side of the cars together well the bad guys started doing that to the culvert they're they're ramming into the culvert to i guess scare ben affleck who can't even see it and wouldn't even really know what's going on so they're destroying their car their only way of chasing ben affleck i when i saw that in the movie i'm like just i give up i i give up it sure it looks cool but that is just, I'm supposed to believe that? Yeah, it, it, it's, it may seem like a minor thing, but sometimes those things get caught in our craw. I, I realize that John Woo is a very celebrated director, and I think he has made some great action sequences throughout his history, and I do think he does deserve some acclaim. But you talk about a director who does things just for... Because he did paycheck, right? He did do paycheck, yes. Yeah, so so good. I'm not just randomly just picking a director. That's what I thought. So my point here is, if you talk about someone who just does things because it's cool and plot, forget about it. 
I kind of think he's one of those kind of directors. I mean, I saw Mission Impossible too. Yeah, I remember seeing this, you know, behind the scenes footage on it, and the the moment where Fandy Newton's car and Tom Cruise's car just somehow connect and they spin sideways together. How he was talking about, oh, you know, this is the the machinery coming together in the you know the meeting of love and intimacy and sex for you know the machines coming coming for that very human i'm like man it's a stupid scene it looks ridiculous don't try if you if you think that yes this is summing up maybe man and his relationship to machine and and some sort of divide between sex and exhaust pipes whatever it's your world man you think whatever doesn't mean it's a good looking scene I think he is a definitely ambitious director when it comes to like action and trying to do something unique. In some ways, he's a guy who kind of paved the way for like your Peter Berger and your Michael Bay's. Like he he definitely was about sort of the poetry and action. But you're right; sometimes it makes no sense to plot, and other times it just feels very pretentious. Yeah. But I did like slow motion soup because on top of all this, on top of everything we've brought up. You can't forget the fact that Netflix had the John Woo uh, original film that had slow motion soup in it. I believe you liked that movie more than I. I did. And I think what put me over the edge was the slow motion soup. And so here's... here's it's the... a bloated movie, isn't it? It is. I feel like my issue was like at two and a half hours, I was kind of like, I had fun up until about 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. And and here's the interesting thing with a movie like that. Like I talked about my appreciation for uh, Gods of Egypt and and what it was with with like that that John Woo film and you know slow motion soup. It my appreciation was it wasn't about John Woo. It was about the lunacy of somebody somebody thought that this was cool looking. And I couldn't shake that from being my entertainment. See, th- this is taking me back to the whole, like, you know, the culture of, you know, gleefully attacking films or bashing films. See, th- this is the side, this is the reverse side. This is why I'm so opposed to bashing movies. Because even if a director completely fails, there's some glee, there's some fun, there's some pleasure in seeing, like, but this is this crazy thing they tried. I enjoy craziness, even if it makes no sense. <laughs> like Gerard Butler turning into some sort of golden eagle. Yeah, like th- those are wondrous things. Maybe they mm. don't work as a movie and I can't recommend mm. them, but I'm glad they've been made. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Is sometimes a crappy movie will have scenes that you will remember for the rest of your life. Like, I don't think I'm ever going to rewatch Trolls 2, but I enjoy somebody trying to make what was a very adult movie that's gruesome at times, yet with a plot that felt like it came from a G-rated, G- G-rated family adventure. <laughs> you can't piss on hospitality. What are you doing? I'm losing my belt. <laughs> what is it to... So I don't get hunger pains after the kid stands up on the table and pees on all the green food that would have turned everyone into not trolls because there's no trolls in it. It doesn't turn them into trolls. It turns them into vegetables because the trolls are vegetarians. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that movie is entertaining. I, I, I own that one through iTunes. I do. 
No, I remember that. You, mm-hmm. uh, I believe you emailed me because I, I don't think I had a phone yet at the time with you basically celebrating that you now own it. Yeah, it was like five bucks. Sold. Yeah, no, uh, again, I mean, it's it's just one of those things where I think you, you can't love everything, but it's I would rather a celebration of these misfires and these attempts of craziness rather than gleeful bashing. It's the reason, and I think it's just where our culture is, where this is a little peek behind the curtain. Every single year come, like, November, I email you saying, should we do a Worst of Years show this year? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Each each year, pretty much. Pert year. I, actually, no, maybe maybe we can definitely say every year. Yeah, I think because there's, there is that thing, you, you don't want to necessarily be negative, but at the same point, there is, we, we paid for these films. And so, you know, we, we are allowed to have the opinion, but like, but you sort of have to balance that of like, am I just being a jerk or am I, am I actually, I don't know, doing something right. It's, it's a hard balance. And also I'll, I'll be full disclosure. Another major reason is it's one of our most popular shows of the year. Yeah, which you know changes quite a bit, doesn't it? It changes changes everything if it's very popular. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, if we're ever going to go to that next level and and try to uh, make this go more business wise, you sort of got to look at the stuff that our audiences want, and clearly our audiences enjoy our worst of show. I like to think that we're not that mean spirited on in it, though. I I I hope I hope not. I mean, it's it 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 can be hard because like you you know we mentioned Lone Ranger and the financial bomb that it was it it was hard for me to look at that film and not think calculated cash grab because you know it it is Gore Verbinski it's high budget it's you know taking older source material it's John uh Johnny Depp in a quirky role and and it just felt like it honestly just felt like, okay, let's repeat the success of of Pirates of the Caribbean, and you know maybe that wasn't what was going through their minds ultimately, but that's how it felt. I think when it comes to Lone Ranger, that the cash grab aspect definitely came from the producers, likely, and the executives. And I think it got green lit in that area. Mm-hmm. And I think it was done hoping that we are going to make this uh, Pirates of the Caribbean like thing, but in a Western and this big summer blockbuster. But Gorvin Binsky, especially if you look at his two Pirates of the Caribbean sequels and you look at the cure of wellness, this is a guy who's not afraid of basically making the anti blockbuster, like making these really messy, weird pictures. The Lone Ranger, you realize that's what he's doing. I don't think Gord Vibinski is trying to do some kind of big uh, blockbuster film for the mainstream audience. I don't think he's trying to do something that's a cold cash grab. I think he's trying to do this really weird deconstruction of the Western and a deconstruction of what a hero is. Well, and I think, I mean, we, we look back on Pirates of the Caribbean and we just think, oh, excellent movie, adventure movie, you know, three protagonists and, and Jeffrey Rush is the antagonist. 
but it wasn't three protagonists and one antagonist. You know, Gore Verbinski, like you said, looking at what a hero is because, you know, our, our Jack Sparrow character, he he was in between. He wasn't. He wasn't the good guy. And that's, I mean, I think we completely forget that fact because we've seen it. We know that he becomes a good guy and all that, but it it was you know, something that wasn't typical blockbuster of nature, because I think when you're looking at, okay, we want a fun family film, you, you don't necessarily want a complex character that blurs the lines between good and bad selfishness and altruism. And it's, I think it doesn't get the credit it deserves for how complex that character was. Well, not just that. Jeffrey Rush's character is not necessarily a traditional villain either. No, that's very true because I think, you know, his motivations we easily understand. Like, may, maybe he was the villain that got him that curse that was upon him. But, he, yeah, he's a villain. We get. We understand why he's doing it. Right? And, and it makes sense. Well, if you want a proof that he's a complicated character, look at the way he treats elizabeth swan once he has her mm-hmm. that's not traditional villain treatment no no absolutely he doesn't have bloodlust mm-hmm. yeah so and, and and that's the kind of thing that i think lone ranger has i think he continues because the the sequels of pirates of the caribbean i'm talking about the two gorvin binsky ones i mm-hmm. think the the two after that aren't very good but the two gorvin binsky sequels are very weird and he delves even deeper and is even less feels constrained about the blockbuster formula. And I think that all comes in the Lone Ranger thing. And I think it, I think those movies sort of get panned because they just, people aren't ready for them. Like I think all three of them age better with time. Oh, and we, I mean, when we went back and did the, the pirates of the Caribbean movies and went through them for the podcast, I, I was surprised at how much I liked the second and the third film. If I remember, I think I just gave the second film maybe three stars, but the third film, I think we we gave it a pretty high rating, if I'm remembering it correctly. I, I definitely know I recommended all three of the first few movies when we did this series. I, I, I definitely like the second. I think I like the second more than you, and then I think the third we ended up being on about the same page. Yeah, yeah, which, I mean, goes to show that like I saw the second one in theater and I was like, eh, but it, it does go to show how maybe the expectations of what came before it or the expectations of who's marketing it and all that, how that can uh, really affect what we're thinking when we're going into to see a film. Yeah. And then the magic does get lost with stranger tides. So mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> there you go. That, that That's when I think it gets a bit more, of sort of that cash thing, and then I didn't, I didn't really like the uh, the new one that they did. But you know, one day we'll get a Pirates again. The question is, uh, will it be theater or will it be Disney Plus? Because will there even be theaters? Yeah, will there be theaters? And and you know, here's the the thing about Disney Plus, and and you have this written down is that I think they're making a very very smart move with. In, in terms of the Mandalorian and its success and the fact that streaming services are going to be up against the, you know, content glut it, not too long from now, not, you know, a whole long time from now. And so with Disney, 
plus having the Mandalorian sort of behind the scenes look. Uh, it's it's one per episode, right? One one behind the scenes per episode. Um, I'm not I'm not sure if it's one. Yeah, it might be actually. Maybe it mm-hmm. does fit, work out that way. Yeah, may, yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. I didn't think of it that way, but I think you're right. Yeah, because about eight episodes. Yeah, I, I think I read had read that from one site that that it just you know one one mini doc for for each episode. I think that's great. Uh, I think it could fail if it gets overused or, you know, if if they forget why people connected with something. Because with something like Star Wars, there's this huge backstory, this huge mythology, there's all this stuff. So we're, we're you know, in there. And a lot of Star Wars fans, we're going to tune into whatever we can to find out the, the, the secrets, the hints, the tips, you know, the processes behind stuff. And that's... You know, I think a goldmine for uh, making content that's going to appeal to people while also being easier for them. But if you look at something like the le- the the bonus episode of the Tiger King, which I haven't seen, but apparently is just Joel McHale, you know, having a Skype interview with various people from the show. Uh, I've heard a lot of people say that it is awful, and I. I think it's a sign of what happens when you miscalculate why people were interested in something to begin with. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. I think there's a lot of value in docu-series and, and making ofs, but, but yeah, it has to be justified. I mean, there was a lot of making of Star Wars documentaries in the 80s, and I gobbled them up. And I'm the type of person that loves seeing how something creatively put together i've got a book at home about how et was made i've got one on gremlins and they're fascinating there's a long history and there's a big production history with them something like ghostbusters has a long history but you're right not every piece of art justifies an entire movie and there has definitely been a movement in the last few years where i think people that are passionate about a certain movie or they love a certain movie they create these almost fan documentaries i've heard that apparently there's a fright night one and the fright night documentary is longer than fright night the movie and even fright night fans are saying like i don't really know if this need to be made especially if it's going to be even longer than the actual movie that it's showing its love for there's a really good series i think it was uh for Night- nightmare on elm street i think that's another one that has some history but yeah i've heard the last few years there's been a lot of these kind of fan documentaries coming together people who are passionate they love a movie and not all of them are justified i hear there's a galaxy quest one and i've heard a lot of people saying that yeah i, I don't know if galaxy quest really justified having a movie about it yeah as a huge galaxy quest fan i i think the beauty in that movie is from this between sandwich between the the beginning credits and the end credits and i mean it's just what we sit down what we see what we hear and i you know it, it's not something where i'm wondering oh how did how did they come up with this idea or i know or how that. they came up with it star trek star trek yes <laughs> there we go exactly the docu-series should be the original series of Star Trek, uh, which I'm still working through. I just came to the first episode where someone wearing red uh, bites the dust. So we've now reached the age of color-coded fate, which, you know, it makes it easy. Yeah, one of the most famous uh, tropes that Star Trek created to the point where uh, science fiction author John Scalzi created a really fun sci-fi comedy 
book called Red Shirts. <laughs> That's awesome. And I mean, in, in Galaxy Quest, we had Sam Rockwell freaking out because he had a red shirt on. And he, he knew what that meant. Uh, on the on the Nightmare um, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street uh, docu series, I, I was just thinking about that the other day. It's like it's like five hours long, but if you are a fan of the series, each one is interesting because he, you know there, there's movies in that series that I don't like that I think are stupid, but you you, you know it's it's really really interesting material that they're bringing out. And so it's one of those things that, yeah, it's not slapped together because they've got so much content. There's so much information. So, you you know, you watch a bit here, watch a bit there. And, yeah, even the movies you don't care about, you still feel like you've learned a lot. Yeah, and, and I think that's what we're saying is docu-series and making up stuff is really fun. But you got to make sure it's movies and material that, that justify it. Uh, some stuff is just really rich and it's had a long creative process. And so it's really fascinating to, to watch. Uh, I, I mean, I'm a big fan of behind the scenes stuff. I, I like um, DVD commentaries, but some like the back to the future one, amazing. You get so much insight in it. Undercover brothers, not as no undercover brothers. Yeah. Was, and that's always like when DVDs first came out, it felt like a childhood moment because when you're a child, you just, if, if something's good, you believe that anything in that line will be good. And when, when DVD started coming out, I sort of relived that through the idea of commentary and bonus material, because you get your first few DVDs, you know, this is the first time listening to a director talk, you know, in the moment about what was going on in front of you. And, it was just as a film buff, it's it's amazing, and some of the the vin, uh, like the little add-ons and stuff. But you start then, or at least I did at the time, start thinking, oh, that's what DVDs in general are going to be, and then you get a DVD where it's just there's nothing on there. The director is just humming and hawing through the commentary, and it, it's a bit of a wake-up call. Yeah, not all movies have a fascinating creative history. I mean, people, who, if you're interested, I know, I don't know which DVD it is. I'm sorry, which Blu-ray, but one of them, Alien, has a, really Scott's commentary is amazing. Learn the history of Alien, all that. It's a really good commentary. Uh, James Cameron's commentary for the Terminator movies, the first two, really, really good. But yeah, they're not all equal. Not all movies justify it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I've listened to some awful commentaries where after five minutes, I'm like, okay, I don't think there's anything to say about this film. Mm -hmm. My favorite commentary of all time ever is still FUBAR, where the two leads did the commentary in character. And that was just, it was like watching a whole nother movie. It was, it was brilliant. And then they also did a, a serious commentary as the creators and writers of it. But yeah, that, uh, the Terry and Diener commentary, oh, just hilarious. No, it really is. And you nailed it. It actually is another movie. You, there's more enhancement, more character development as a, uh, they continue to talk about how the director basically was doing character assassinations. Mm -hmm. And if, if I recall, if I recall, uh, the Incredibles, like the the bonus features on the Incredibles just absolutely amazing, and they had like the the old Incredibles cartoon, but didn't they also have a commentary with like Frozone and Mister Incredible 
giving their commentary over the old cartoon. I think I remember them them doing that, which I thought was absolutely brilliant as well. Uh, I, I, yeah, they. I'm going to say yes, they do. Because I, I seem to remember that. I remember watching it when we were up at Mediva. Mm-hmm. Yes, they do. I also want to take a second of uh, just having this person's listening. The person who stole uh, Scott's incredible DVD, you're a jerk. You're a total jerk. Because... Like I said, the, 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 that was my gift to you. Yeah. Chris gave it to me for one. And for two, it's one of the best DVDs when it comes to special features. It is fun. I mean, I, I named That's where the Jack Jack, uh, animated short debuted, right? Yeah. And also, I mean, I got a kayak and I named it Mr. Skipper So ask me, just ask me how much I like the special features on that DVD. Well, <laughs> that that's the thing, right? Is um, talking about like films that work at different levels. Where my wife really enjoys Incredibles because she thinks it's fun and that it's funny, and she she just really likes it. But then someone like me who collected comic books or watched like superhero cartoons in the eighties, I have a whole new level of appreciation for it. And where they have that incredible, that old school Incredibles cartoon, I love it because I know that in the '80s, almost every superhero cartoon had this weird animal or robot that had to always be connected as a sidekick, and that's what Skipper Skipper Do is. So mm-hmm. to me, I love that. Like, someone my wife wouldn't get that joke. I think it's brilliant because it's totally speaking to '80s cartoons. It is. It is. It's like okay, we they need a, they need a fun sidekick. They we they have to have a fun sidekick. So yeah, Mr. Skipperdo. Wow, well, brilliant was that. <laughs> no, it was brilliant. And uh the animation was very almost like the original Amazing Spider-Man, I believe, mm-hmm. type animation. It, it was a step below that with the the human mouths moving. Uh, yeah, there, I'm pretty sure there is a cartoon that it was essentially that mm-hmm. I can't remember which one it is. Cause you're right. It is an amazing Spider-Man, but amazing Spider-Man is the one where they redo a lot of the animation. Yeah. Where they really he always, do. when he's flinging in the, mm-hmm. the, with his, uh, with his webs are, mm-hmm. I believe it's always the same shot. Very Hanna-Barbera at the sort of the later stages when like the amount of cartoons Hanna-Barbera had going, it, it the quality was definitely even as a kid you're like wow i think i'm just seeing some stuff over again yeah there's a really really interesting documentary on youtube that i watched years ago that i recommend to anyone who loves the history of like saturday morning cartoons that's about the rise and fall of Hanna barbera which mentions that very stuff where they just started doing so many animated series that they had to start redoing stuff and that certain characters were essentially from other animated series and they just basically like drew over it, painted over it, where it's basically the same character again, but now he has a mustache or he has this. And they just started cutting a lot of corners and it led to their fall. Mm-hmm. Which is why I think for me, when Adult Swim was you know first going with, with um, Space Ghost, that was, I don't know, because you're used to seeing just sort of that faulty Hanna-Barbera animation style that is so if they don't have to show a character moving if they show a character standing cut to something else and go back okay now the character is sitting and and, you know that's that's fine we didn't have to animate them going through the process 
And so, yeah, when uh, Space Ghost came out and I started getting on that show, there was a lot of appreciation for how they redid that animation style. And I think it's done with affection. Mm -hmm. That's another one where I feel it was done with a love for it. But no, you're 100% right. But it came down to the fact that they were churning out like 30 or maybe 60 cartoons. And so they had to be cheap like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember reading sort of about the increase in in cartoons they had and it is like it's it, it's insane you would looking now even at what technology we have now and 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 you know the advancements of everything i would be surprised if there was any animation studio that came even close to half of what Hanna-Barbera was doing no, no, no one will ever touch the level of output that they did again. And I mean, to be fair, some of the stuff they came up with was very creative and genius. A lot of it also was rehashes. Mm-hmm. They had about five different Scooby Doo knockoffs. Like they started knocking off the knocking off themselves. Mm. It's very, very fascinating because it's especially the fact that they 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 collapsed. They, you know, they fell to the ground because when you think about their hits those are the sort of things that you would expect would just carry on through the years. Yeah. But a lot of their hits, they kept on redoing, right? Like how mm-hmm. many versions of, because there was literal Scooby-Doo knockoffs where all of a sudden it was like, you know, the, the super hound mystery game or whatever. Like there was not, but then they also did like 50 different versions of Scooby-Doo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it just started uh, diluting what, people liked like they started doing captain caveman series and different versions of like the flintstone and different versions of yogi bear and it just it wore people out we oversaturation is a real thing that is for sure and uh, i I should just note that um space ghost was an actual hanna-barbera series before they became the more famous adult swim mm-hmm. and all the characters on space ghost were Hanna-Barbera characters. I don't think they're mm-hmm. acting the way they did in the Hanna-Barbera series, but they part of the genius of that new space ghost was the fact that they were all, every character in that show was from Hanna-Barbera. Yeah. And, and that's, that was, I mean, even when they went to Harvey Birdman attorney at law and, and still with the, the way they use the Hanna-Barbera characters and everything, just, so so good but i i remember uh years and years and years ago watching an actual space ghost episode not coast to coast and being like wow i'm they i don't know how they looked at that and said i have no idea how they looked at that and we ended up getting what we got no idea at all it's baffling some great creativity and and now we are uh having a potential another Hanna-Barbera cinematic universe. Cause that, uh, Scoob movie, I keep on talking about the Scooby-Doo anime movie that who knows when it's going to come out now. I, I won't be surprised if it lands on a streamer somewhere. It, it apparently has several other Hanna-Barbera characters in it. Ah, uh, wonderful. From other, like, you know, like when the villains are going after is Snidely Whiplash. Oh, good, 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 good. Uh, wonderful. Um, because, I mean, we all know how uh, Dudley Do-Right went. And because I'm pretty sure that was the villain in Dudley Do-Right movie, right? I never uh, saw I never saw the movie. I watched the cartoon all the time, though. Yeah, I never saw the movie. Snidely Whiplash. Yeah, I, th- I think it... Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's him. Because he always, like, tied the girl to the train tracks. Uh-huh. 
but there was also that movie where they or the cartoon series where they raced in cars. I think that had Snidely Whiplash too. Okay. Car Racer Cartoon Time, which may not be the title. I uh I really, really liked um Rocky and Bullwinkle, I have to say. So I was a bit... Yeah, no, I did. I thought yeah. Rocky and Bullwinkle is uh yeah, no, it, it's genius. It's not Rocky and Bullwinkle is that where Georgia Jungle originally came from? I know it's where um, uh, Peabody and Sherman came from. Mm-hmm. I don't think Georgia the Jungle. I don't remember seeing an episode of Rocky and Bullwinkle and, and getting a glimpse of uh, Georgia the Jungle in there. It was probably just similar humor then. I'm mixing things up. Mm-hmm. I think it, I think similar humor, yeah. Okay, so there was Snidely Whiplash in the 1999 Dudley Do-Right movie. Yeah, I have to confess, I haven't seen that one either. But I have seen, as uh, a listener who listens to the show a lot would know, I have seen Georgia the Jungle live action and its sequel. Ah, and that wouldn't happen to be because of children and and their desire to watch different fun-looking movies? Well, as a listener would know, yes, it is, because they really loved... uh, the first Georgia Jungle, they thought it was genius, so we had to watch the straight-to-video sequel, which is also available on Disney+. Plus. Scott apparently doesn't listen, even though he's on the show. I, I don't listen to anything. Sorry, what were you saying? <laughs> oh, I, I, I was talking about Hellraiser. Okay, good. Yeah, I watched that the other night. First time, never ever seen a, an, a Hellraiser movie in my life, which yeah. seems odd because I like horror so much. Here's the thing, okay? Here's the thing about Hellraiser uh, with with the SAG. We are going to be discussing the actual original in um, the, now on our main show now, uh, this uh, Monday. But, I mean, apparently there's a Hellraiser reboot in the works. And that really baffles me because in the 80s, Gore was a big part of horror. There was a lot of gore in uh, horror movies in the 80s. Uh, they were definitely very violent. There was a lot of sexualization in the 80s. I mean, you had Fatal Attraction. You had the sexual thrillers. You had movies that were almost what you consider softcore porn coming to the big screen. like that. So sex and violence were very, very prevalent in the, in the 1980s. None of that stuff really exists at a big studio level anymore maybe in the independent films they do but you don't really have super gory horror anymore you don't really have like sexualization in big studio movies and if you don't have those two things i don't understand the point of a hellraiser movie yeah so this is how i take it after seeing hellraiser you've got the xenobites is that what they're called yeah yeah so basically you open the cube if you're into S&M and want pain and pleasure. You do that, and it takes you to pain and pleasure to a different level. Uh, the, the gore is kind of needed in this movie because, um, you know, when we when we see the Cenobites, we, we kind of understand, all right, I think we're on the same terms when it comes to pain. But when I see the Cenobites, I think, I think they've got a different idea of pleasure than I do. Because they're they're so well designed, and, and you barely see them. They're hardly in the movie, but when they're there, you realize 
you're not you're any kind of idea of pleasure you're getting is gonna be horrific and so therefore the gore is kind of needed to show why you don't want to ever ever touch that box well i think hellraiser was speaking to something of the time like i said sexualization and and the rise of kind of sex with violence, I think, was a very big thing in the 80s. I mean, again, Reanimator, we talk about Stuart Gordon, he explores that all the time in a lot of his films. It was a big thing at the time. So it made sense to make a movie like that. And you're right, you need that type of stuff to make that movie work. I just don't think it has a place anymore now. Well, that's that's just it because, I mean, the the gore aspect of of the 80s worked with the film right like you had said it is a different time the sexualization i the you can't have a watered down version of that film because of what those cenobites stand for and if you're yes. going to understand why you want to never ever come in contact with them it does need to be visceral and so therefore in an age where horror even stuff that's not that's you know going for our it's never going to be as bad as that, or mostly not as bad as that, but okay. That's not on just, a big studio level. Not on, yes, not on the studio level, but the other part of it is, are the audiences in for it? And like, does the modern audience really want to sign up for something that basically the premise is based around gore? I mean, Hellraiser was shocking when it came out. Like, I think it is a cult hit for a reason. I think it will definitely shocked audiences. But there was still that kind of stuff out there at that time. Like I said, there was like a fatal attraction. There was uh, nine and a half weeks or whatever it's called. Like there was these sexual films, these very adult films. A few years later, you'd have basic instinct. Like there, these things existed and they came out in big studio and adults were aware of them. There's not been anything like that in 10 years. So I think you're right. Audiences wouldn't even be prepared for something like that on a big screen now. Yeah. So I just, I don't think it works. I think... If we look at the fact, uh, if we look at the Hellraiser series, the amount of movies, the decline in popularity, I think that is a, a good barometer for where people sit with the franchise. Well, and I also think you talk about the ratings, like R ratings. I think those type of things have also changed. Like what constitutes an R rating in America today? What constitutes an 18A rating in Ontario today? I think it's very different what it did in the 80s. Because I look at something like the original Red Dawn. That was one of the first PG-13 movies. I'm pretty sure if Red Dawn came out today with the same level of violence that was in the Red Dawn of 1984, I believe... It would be actually rated R now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The times they are a changing. That's for sure. Yeah. So they're stricter. And so I don't even think a Hellraiser today that warranted an R in 1987 could get one today. I think it would be an X rating or in Ontario would be an R rating, which means it's literally restricted. Well, 18A is like the American equivalent of an R rating. I don't think they would even allow it to screen because it would just be too grotesque, which is funny because the version that you saw, the 1987 version, some stuff had to be cut down for it to get an R rating even in 1987. Which is baffling because it's... I, it, he he it, had more stuff than even that. Because the stuff that's in it is um, very efficient. It's The the special effects are very efficient, I would say. 
Um, I sort of look at it like, a, with, you know, in line with the thing and uh, sort of... Uh, really in special effects. Mm-hmm, yeah. And, and you know, it, it's... I don't know. Part of it, too, was that aspect of the special effects that just made it a part of the 80s. There was a flavor to it. And it... I think some things are going to have a hard time finding life outside of their their decades. Unless... The thing, the thing, I don't want like they. I guess they actually already did one, but mm-hmm. I don't think the thing would work now. Which I guess a few years ago that bomb proves. Yeah, I'm correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the only way it's really going to work is if you do a complete reimagining of it, but something, but is something that's still going to connect with audiences though, instead of just thinking for the sake of reimagining. The, you know, let's do Suspiria as a reimagining. Therefore, it'll connect. Well, yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, Suspiria, uh, the Suspiria remake, I would also put with a Hellraiser remake, where if you reimagine Hellraiser today and you change it, then I'm left with the point wondering why are you still calling it Hellraiser, though? Yes, exactly. Like, Suspiria, I felt like after watching it, I'm like, there's things I liked about this. I don't know why they called it Suspiria, though. It didn't. It didn't need to be. That that's part of it, isn't it? It just. I don't know. I'm I'm fine if if they just said, oh, let's let's have a witch's coven uh, idea around um, impressionable young people, and you know, just just go with it, because you know, maybe yeah, it's like, oh, there's elements of Suspiria in there, but. You know, it's still its own thing. Yeah, more like sort of like a Fast and Furious thing, where the original Fast and Furious was basically a point break, but with cars now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. we've lost that idea of taking ideas and then make it something different. I, I, I prefer sort of, you know, ripping something off rather than remaking something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, I mean... Let's let's be honest. Some of the stuff we really like, it may not be completely ripping the things off, but some of the directors are so influenced by stuff, directors and screenwriters, that there's a lot of things we see that is basically, yeah, influenced by other things. And they don't feel the need to make it uh, part of a franchise. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Uh, one thing about Hellraiser that I think it's really fascinating, and we'll probably talk about it more uh, for our main show, but I do want to mention this just uh, quickly. Yeah, you're talking about how the the Cenobites are not a major part of the original Hellraiser and Pinhead. He's not even called Pinhead, and it's interesting because on the posters, if people look at it, they think they probably think Pinhead is this major iconic character. But when he was made in Hellraiser, you could tell they were not like Clive Barker was not trying to make him an iconic character. And I find it fascinating where some characters were originally made. They weren't made to be iconic, and then they become that. And I think of, like, Pinhead, I think of Jason, and I think, of course, of Leatherface. Yeah, and, and which is which is interesting because after the 80s where you had this, I don't know, very visu- visually distinct villain, be it Jason, Leatherface, Freddy Krueger, Chucky, Pinhead. Mike Myers. Mike Myers, yeah. The list is long and strong. Real, all of them very, you know, weird. Like, they, the, their looks are all telling something, and they are they all, I think, are well-designed. 
but then we, as time moved on, it's like, okay, we need to have a villain that has a look. We need to have a villain that does this or, you know, that we can put on the front of the box. And now we're doing a franchise. Yeah. And I just find it so fascinating because like, I remember you saying that your nephew was so disappointed to find out that Leatherface was just part of a group. He wasn't the big, scary stalker. He was just part of a group. And with Hellraiser rewatched, I realized Pinhead is just part of a group. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's sort of, it, 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 you, it's easy to forget things, right? Like when, when so much time's passed and there's sort of this pedestal that's been created for one of the characters, you can so easily forget that, okay, the movie's point wasn't that specific character. It was just an aspect. Well, and again, we'll talk about more, but the thing about Hellraiser, which is really fascinating, is they're not even the villains of the film, or really even the plot drivers. No, no. And here's another question. Are they villains? In in the in the original movie, I would say no. I wonder though if they became them in the sequels. Mm. Yeah. I'm guessing. But the original that. movie, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely sort of push takes expectations away and, and reshapes things when you see something after something's become so iconic. Yeah, no, yeah, no, exactly. I I, I think that's uh, really fascinating. Oh, so so they're doing a Hellraiser thing, and we totally agree that that wouldn't work in modern times. Apparently, in an article, just as an offhand, but I heard that they are working on doing a reboot of Scream. Do you think a meta horror movie, especially when we already know what Scream is, do you think there's any way of doing a satisfying reimagining of Scream? Because I feel like the meta thing's already been done. If you take out the meta, then it's just Halloween. I think there's no point in doing it because the meta thing is because has really, you know, reached its tentacles into many different types of movies. And so now it's common now. It yeah, it's so common that really does it does it make anything? Does it have an impact? And because Marvel's meta now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like it it's just the something, biggest blockbuster film is meta. <laughs> yeah. And it and it's so um so natural and so common it's a device in movies that is you know it it's just become part of everything so i would not see how a scream film would work because yeah if we took that element out of scream then you just have a generic slasher and absolutely nothing else and it it was that different look at it it was that meta aspect that took a, the, the aspects of a basic slasher and made a phenomenal film. Yeah, and I just don't think there's a place for a generic slasher in 2020. No, no, there's not. That's, there, there's not. I mean, back in the days when, you know, slashers were new and, and everything and people just wanted to see one and maybe you missed the window for the latest Friday the 13th film, but oh, there's another one coming up. You know, that those days are so far gone and I, I don't think there's much, if any, appetite really for, for generic slashers. 
I also don't really think, like in the 80s when there wasn't as a huge selection of entertainment, yes, slashers were big, so we didn't see Friday the 13th, so I'll see Sleepaway Camp, or I'll go for that. I don't really think modern audiences are that big on, oh, this is kind of like that movie anymore. They're more like, I just want to see the real deal. I want to see the real McCoy and not any of the offshoots. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, with, with, you know, media being much more accessible that's definitely sort of become the thing i I would say yeah yeah so i just i I don't know i mean i feel like you'd have to do something different with scream and i just uh, yeah i I can't figure out what it is so like scream and hellraiser they both sort of seem like they're right up there with the other for me where i'm just like all those ones i'm baffled about the point and i'm just as baffled of the point of why they keep on wanting to try to remake friday the 13th i don't think that has much of a purpose but on the other token i thought there's no point remaking child's play and i was wrong we were proven wrong and we're also proven wrong sometimes where oh a game about hide and seek screw that i don't want to see that and so i mean i would say though we're we're taken by surprise maybe only 15% of the time. What I love about Ready or Not is the first time I told you about it, you thought it was a joke text. I did. I did. Because, I mean, seriously. Seriously. But, you know, like I said, maybe about 15% of the time, these movies that we're just baffled by actually, you know, hit the spot. Well, you. let's be honest. I'm pretty sure you didn't think there was a chance that The Shallows was going to be good. That's correct. Mm-hmm. That's and we both walked correct. away liking it. So, yeah. I mean, that that's the joy is... Now, I, I'm guessing with Crawl, you probably were already proven wrong with Shallows, so you were more open to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, even, even Mad Max Fury Road, the initial trailer that dropped, we didn't... We It looked... Like, it was just a mixed mash of stuff, and it it didn't look good. Oh, I, I had no faith in Mad Max. I was probably going to watch it anyways, because I have affection for the original three, because I saw those in my childhood. But, oh, no, I, I will be 100% honest with you. I did not think it was going to work. Mm-hmm. No, neither did I. It Sometimes we get blind spited. We get blind spited. <laughs> I hate being blindspited. Me too. Me too. And if you, dear listener, don't like being blindspited either, then, you know, you can write into us. Let us know. Just, gosh, we all hate this blindspied. You can reach us via email at themoviebreakdown at gmail.com. And on Twitter, we are at moviebreakdown1. And our Facebook page, The Movie Breakdown. As well, if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please hit the subscribe. Give us a review. We appreciate it. And uh, in also whatever other podcast platforms you would listen to us on, do the same. I actually don't know much about other podcast platforms, so, you know, I, I, I don't know what, what there is. But, hey, your world, you live it. Subscribe. All the same. Yeah, no, we, uh, there's a podcast feed right on the blog that you can subscribe to. And then I'm continually looking. Some... Uh, podcatchers basically automatically grab my stuff because I have a podcast feed. Some don't, so I'm still working on getting into even more so that it's easier for us to track down and to grow. So we get bigger and bigger uh, by the day. And uh, also, I 
we're, we're so thankful that you guys come and listen to us every single week, and we're glad that you guys enjoy the um, bonus episodes. I also just want to do a little bit of promotion. I've got my blog, chrispicer.blogspot.ca. Keep on trying to put more and more stuff there. I still have a lot of stuff planned this week uh, up there right now. You can see Scott's uh, guest post of Men at Work and Last Airbender, both of them. He answers the question of, are they better than their reputation? They're uh, really fun reads. I also coin a phrase called the critic roadblock. And so I talk about how, uh, yeah, I, I explain what the critic roadblock is and say how it was demonstrated in a review between Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel during uh, The New Nightmare. So you could check that as well. And then, of course, uh, we have our podcast podcast on there. And I've got a lot of other stuff planned this week. I'm going to uh, do a few more repostings of collective publishing. I've got some movie reviews that will come up on there. And maybe not this week, but very soon, because uh, I don't know if I'll get it done by Friday, I'll be starting the serialized fiction. Which I'm really excited about. I'm really, really excited about uh yeah i i hadn't yet read the uh the danger of the critic roadblock and i'm i'm rather interested in that um so i i definitely if you're listening to this i second you going over to chrisspicer.blogspot.com and checking that out and i i appreciate that thank you oh you're welcome and also there there should be in the next few days next day or two a uh a look at battleship and yeah is it that bad is it that bad Yeah, you've sort of told me where you stand on it, but I'm still really fascinated to see how you came to that opinion. I, uh, yeah, Battleship's one I'm, I don't know, I've always had curiosity towards it. What's scaring me away is I think it's almost two and a half hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it is. Um, <clears throat> it, it's like, like I said, the, the entire game could be replaced by two sheets of graph paper and two pencils. And so having two and a half hours based off of that simple concept is not, is not good. I just can't wait till Hangman, the game, or the movie comes out. Tic-tac-toe? <laughs> oh, goodness. Or it could be a sexual thriller. Tic-tac-show. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, no, and, and the person's last name is Show. <laughs> it's me. Tickerson Show. <laughs> And and if it sounds like we're just being idiots, I'm sure someone out there would think that's a good idea for a movie. You know what? With the lockdown and everyone just feeling, I think craziness is starting to set in. I'm pretty sure the screenplay is being worked on right now. As we speak, yeah. Oh, well, thank you very much for listening to this episode of the movie. Or the, the Our mid-week. bonus show. That's right. The midweek breakdown. Uh, I'm Scott Martin. I'm Christopher Spicer. Goodbye. Bye, everybody. Have a great week.